I guess over the bulk of my life, I've pretty much been fascinated by pretty much one topic more than anything else, which is trying to understand the mind. Ever since I was a kid, surrounded by the Buddhist, my dad's Buddhist books and my mom's books on Freud and Jung and Rank and Erickson, and I've just been, between the two, I just was fascinated in trying to get a handle. The mind is, of course, very complex experience to unpack. Probably what makes it so difficult to unpack is how much of the mind we are unaware of. Um, Ever since the advent of what we could call the beginning of modern psychology, which one would probably safely date with Freud, Jung, and the American William James, uh, would be the recognition that each of these great psychologists had that the mind is not an entire unified single experience, that it's split. Split between what? Split between the conscious thoughts and awareness that we can volitionally guide everything that you can point to right now and uh, anything that you can... Uh, hold as uh, something that is part of your conscious experience. But then there are also those parts of the mind that we are not aware of. One is called the subconscious, and the subconscious is the realm of all the motor mechanisms, the uh, what's called implicit memories and skills that you don't need to oversee. For instance, you can probably walk around and think about something without making sure that your left foot you know, moves in front of your right and then your right in front of your left. You walk without thinking about it. You tie your shoes without thinking about it. You probably sit in a chair without being aware of everything you're doing. Um, so all of those things that are un- subconscious, the movements that we do that we're unaware of, they reside in the brainstem, and they're going on in the background. And people often misuse or uh, believe that the subconscious is the same thing as the unconscious, but in fact they're very, very different. The unconscious is actually a realm of experiences that we have in life that are formative, emotional experiences that help guide us Uh, and set expectations about what we will get in our lives, how we should relate to other people, the decisions we make. So it's not mechanisms or motor skills at all. It's, in fact, emotions and impulses that reside in the unconscious. uh, Freud noted that many of the, much of the content of the unconscious is, in fact, repressed. It's painful, difficult, or um, awarenesses that we wouldn't really like to be conscious of, and yet we need it to be there. So, one of the most important presences in the unconscious, uh, Jung called the imago, which is a mix between the word image and ego. It's spelled I-M-A-G-O. Uh, pronounced imago. Freud had the same idea, but he called it the superego. 
even William James had his own version of it. And the basic idea is that we internalize representations of important people. These internalized images or imagos are felt presences that help guide us through life. Internal versions of, as, you, as it were, mother, father, uh, other people that have been emotionally important to us. And they're not something that we carry around so much at, in consciousness or in any awareness, although sometimes we can hear the voice of a mom or a dad. Uh, but very often, the, this internalized representation, this internalized version of our caretakers are there behind the scenes influencing us influencing our choices and we confuse their influences with our own true spontaneous selves so the point of these uh, the point of these internalized mom and dads these interjected parents, as it were, interjected means internalized, uh, is to regulate us. They are emotional states that uh, are there that make us feel a sense of security. When we are children, we rely on our parents to guide us, to protect us, to steer us through the world, to help us know who's safe and who's dangerous, to help us know what situations we can move into and what situations we can't. But then there comes a time as children when we begin to gravitate away from the presence of our parents, and during those times we use what's known as transitional objects, blankets, toys, uh, objects that we carry around to make us feel the presence of something that will protect us. This transitional object happens at the same time we begin to internalize our parents. Uh, the great Lev Vygotsky, one of my favorite figures in modern psychology, noted that the beginning of inner thought doesn't start out with our own thoughts, but actually is an internalization of the words that our parents tell us. Our thoughts are not our own at first. We are internalizing the speech that we've heard our parents speak to us. I don't know why that scares me more than it scares you. You all are very blasé. I remember what my parents were like. I'm like, oh, no. I read that, and I'm like, well, I am kind of screwed. Yeah. But uh, you guys are taking it very well. That's nice, I guess. Uh, <laughs> we all grow up in different situations. Uh, <laughs> so, um, the interjected imagos, there can be multiple ones. There can be good imagos, the loving mother, and, and, and very strict Nazi-like imagos, the interjected father, or vice versa. Um, the imago that's... One imago can be very loving, 
But very often, uh, the imago is a source of regulation, pitting itself against the impulses to seek pleasure. In the classic Freudian scheme, there's uh, the id, which is the unconscious impulses towards pleasure, which is pitted in an epic battle against the superego, the internalized law of the parents and culture, which says, no, you don't get to jerk off in public. (laughs) It doesn't say that consciously, it just stops you from doing it. the internalized id which wants to play with your poop after you take a, a dump and the interjected parent that says no that's unbecoming <laughs> which is uh, which which is uh, I was feeling this was a little dry I needed to wake everybody up so um, really the interjected imago or interjected superego is a realm of often shoulds, societal regulations, um, frugality, staying in line, doing the things that keep us acting in ways that our parents taught us would make for smooth sailing in the world of other people. So it's a regulating realm that pits itself against the desire to play be spontaneous to uh, be uh, impulsive. It's, it pits itself against that. The internalized, interjected parent, or the superego, or the imago, whatever you want to call it, regulates us through feelings of shame and fear of abandonment, and occasionally even an inner voice that judges and criticizes us. Hence the great psychologist Melanie Klein referred to the imago as one of the greatest sources of anxiety of the human experience. Because while we need to have this regulating impulse, very often it is over-regulating, seeks too much power, too much impulse, keeps us locked into miserable experiences that don't allow us to grow. When we work against, we push against the superego or the imago, we experience shame, guilt. On the other hand, when we push too far against the desire for pleasure and joy and uh, spontaneous impulses that need to be articulated, we become inhibited and uh, we become frustrated and we become, uh, there's a feeling of emptiness. So if we go too far in either direction, we wind up unhappy, either through shame or through inhibition. So it's a balancing act, and this should not be surprising, in fact, the Buddha called his spiritual path the middle path. He said that it was a way to navigate between sensual indulgence and extreme self-belittling and self-regulating and self-denial. So very much the Buddha acknowledged that 
there was a role, an important role that the ego plays in helping us navigate through these twin impulses to overregulate ourselves and on the other hand to overly act out on impulses that might get us into trouble. Of course, we very often, while we very often succeed in doing this, we often in life fail. This is what leads to those obsessive, recurrent battles in our minds that lead to stalemates that we can't navigate through. I'll give you two examples uh, from my own life. Uh, There was a time when I was deeply unhappy working in what at the time was my day job. I was an art director at a graphic design firm, and I was miserable, and I had uh, already been getting teacher training from Noah, and I was wanting to uh, devote my life to Buddhist practice. This was about 11 or 12 years ago, beyond just being a meditator and going on retreats. I wanted to play an active role Uh, And I wanted spiritual practice to be at the center of my life, not not something that was sharing with this eight-hour-a-day job that I was miserable at. But it was very difficult for me at the time to walk away from that job because so much of my sense of security was uh, provided by that work where there was a regular paycheck. And the the superego, or the imago, my internalized mother, was at times basically... um, the, The idea of quitting and walking away from a financially secure situation created a lot of fear. A lot of fear of abandonment, a lot of fear that I wouldn't succeed, and a lot of a sense of shame that I would have failed and just being a normal, you know, guy who navigates through life and, you know, you know, has financial security and all that. So my internalized mother and father were basically speaking through my emotions and saying, don't do it. <laughs> don't quit. But I was miserable. And the problem was when I tried to figure it out, what I should do, should I quit this job that I loathe and go out into a life of dodgy financial prospects, to say the least, or should I stay in the cushy situation that was uh, utterly inauthentic and hollow of any meaning or deeper sense of purpose for me? And the problem was is that no matter how many times I tried to figure it out or solve it through thinking, it wouldn't work. And the reason it wouldn't work is because the feelings of fear and shame triggered by the superego and the feelings of frustration and inhibition triggered by the desire to grow were both felt. They weren't in words in my mind. They were felt feelings. So no matter how much I tried to figure it out, I couldn't capture the feelings in the words in my mind. So no matter which solution I came up with, I knew that I wasn't doing the decision justice because I was trying to translate 
felt feelings of inauthenticity and felt fears into words. And there was no amount of thinking about it that could capture or adequately translate the felt into the thought. No matter which decision I would make, okay, I'm going to quit my job, then the inner mother would create fear and shame and guilt, and the thought, I'm going to quit, would not placate that. Likewise, when I say, well, okay, I'm just going to stay in this miserable job, the felt feelings of frustration in no way were placated. Because it was all something that was happening up here in the thinking mind, and none of it was addressing or taking into consideration the emotional, somatic experience. There was another time, way, way previously, that I was in a relationship, a long-term relationship with a woman that my parents really liked and all my friends really liked. And she was a wonderful, wonderful person, but I realized I wasn't happy. And the idea of leaving the relationship after a long term of trying to work, years of trying to make it work out, created lots of feelings of guilt. And yet, staying in the relationship kept created the feelings of, I'm not getting my needs met, I don't feel like we're growing together, I don't feel like we're seeing uh, or our aspirations are in any way similar. I didn't feel particularly well seen, and I'm sure that she didn't either. Yet, to give myself permission to leave an unhappy relationship, I had to go against that inner tyrant, the felt feelings. So much of the superego we can mistake for ourselves. And the superego is not placated. No matter how many hoops we jump through to show the introjected, if it's a negative or overly regulating superego, no matter how much we try to achieve in the world, no matter how much we write or create or money we make or uh, awards we win, it's simply an internalized tape recording that is never placated. Its, its role in the brain, the superhero's role, is never to be satisfied. Is always to say, no, you're being self-indulgent, stop. And the role of the it is to never feel there's enough pleasure, enough drugs, enough sex, enough, you know, uh, whatever, whatever it's seeking. So these twin impulses, if left unchecked, will never be satisfied and will try to overly push us around and overly regulate us. And in my case, I have to say that in the great neurotic New York Jewish tradition, I probably err far on the superego as opposed to the acting out on impulses. So, uh, the imagos play a big role also in determining the, pick, the people that we choose in our romantic life. It's amazing how many people I work with that say, I can't, you know, if only I had known, or why do I keep picking the same person who doesn't meet my needs? And that is because the unconscious images of the parents that we store create the templates against which uh, so many of the woundings that have happened that we try to redress or 
unright in our adult choices. If a guy grows up with a mom that is uh, a little bit enmeshing, doesn't know when to back off, he will unconsciously choose partners that will do the same and then constantly wind up avoidant, trying to figure out the childhood dilemma. Likewise, the young daughter who grows up with a disappearing father may choose unavailable men or unavailable women to be romantic partners. Again, reproducing the core dramas. So it plays a role in so many of the choices that we make. And it's so easy to confuse our own authentic or the impulses that are in our best interest with these internal regulating feelings. The Buddha grew up with a very, very domineering father, Suddhodana. And Suddhodana was very, very uh, materialistic. Um, he cared deeply about the Buddha, but as much as he cared about the Buddha, he was also deeply invested in the idea of his son taking over the family business, running the kingdom that Suddhodana had amass, amassed. And Suddhodana even tried, it said, in some of the tales, it suggested that Suddhodana suggested to the Buddha that he could rule compassionately and fix a lot of the world's problems by using his wealth. He could be, as it were, an enlightened despot. So the, the Buddha's father didn't want him in any way to pursue a spiritual path. And so the Buddha spent 28 years sheltered and largely uninquisitive until finally he had had enough. And it's interesting, what the Buddha did is he did the first successful strategy of anybody who wants to regulate their superego, that inner critic, that inner tyrant. The first thing the Buddha did is he reparented himself. He found two teachers, the first being Alara Kalama, and then the second, Udaka Ramaputra. And these two wonderful figures, Kalama was a yogi, basically a, back then the equivalent of today's uh, um, uh, Hindu yogi teacher, and uh, taught the Buddha to achieve great states of inner peace. In other words, Udaka Ramaputra and, Rama, and Alara Kalamas were the exact opposite of the Buddha's father in that they were anti-materialists. They didn't give a hoot about um, amassing wealth or fortune or material. They actually lived in poverty. But they taught, they compensated for the Buddha's father by reparenting the Buddha, instructing the Buddha in ways to find peace within. So that's what the Buddha did first. He didn't just try to get rid of or push out the materialist uh, internalized feelings of material hoarding that was implanted by his family's systems. The Buddha went out and found two teachers that would in essence allow him to develop a new internalized figure, a figure that was um, caring, loving. This is what people do in 12-step programs, Everybody who goes into a 12-step program has been relationally scarred by uh, a parent that was either enmeshing or abandoning. 
And they've all tried substances and behaviors to try to regulate the feelings of loss and disconnection or being uh, engulfed. And so eventually when the substances don't work, the person in a 12-step program will seek out a sponsor who will reparent them and internalize a loving, caring voice. I needed to do that. I spent an embarrassing amount of years in therapy and uh, most of it in Buddhist therapy with a good friend Shoto, who I'm lucky to have spent more than a decade working with. And he and many other monks that I've studied uh, with and nuns have reparented so much of my own internal uh, uh, structures. I, in many ways, I from my mom, I had uh, an internal imago that was very driven to be creative and responsible and kind with people. That's who she was. With my dad, he was at times drunk and irresponsible and impulsive, and at times he was deeply creative. So I have all those imagos, but I needed to counterbalance it with a gentle, compassionate figure who was uh, capable of bestowing kindness in an unconditional way. The second tool that the Buddha did that was so wonderful was... The Buddha learned to spot Mara whenever Mara would appear. And Mara would come in various guises. Mara, I'm suggesting, by the way, is an introjection of the, the Buddha's father, Suddhodana, a, 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 a superego figure that came to overly regulate the Buddha. And what would Mara say? Wonderful things. Mara said to the Buddha, You're not pure. Even though you think you are, you're not even remotely spiritual. Give up all this teaching and go home. <laughs> when the Buddha was injured, one day Mara came to the Buddha and said, What are you, lazy? Why are you lying down? What are you, fantasizing? Don't you have something better to do back home? Again, so it's an internalized version of his father saying, Come back home! What are you doing out here in the jungle meditating with all these hippies? This is crazy! <laughs> And what would the Buddha do? He wouldn't argue with Mara as much as at first, you know, the first couple of times he did, but then after a while, it's interesting, in the suttas, the Buddha starts going, I see you, Mara. He's saying, in other words, I see you, Dad. I see you, Superego. You're not me. You are not me. That's really fundamental in dealing with the inner critic, is not trying to argue or reason or placate but at times the spotting it and asking ourselves, okay, is this really in my best interest or not? But this is not me. These are not my thoughts, feelings, impulses. These have been interjected. So we can choose. We can walk around and ask people, is it true that if I quit my job, I'm, I'm worthless? Or if I leave this relationship, am I really a loser? Or if I, if I decide to stop working for a while and travel, does that make me completely unreasonable and, uh, uh, you know, indulgent? We can check. With, if we mistake the superego for our self, if we identify with it, then we'll go along with it.
will just simply say, oh, I feel ashamed of that idea. I can't, I can't do that. I can't possibly travel. I can't possibly leave this job, go into that new experience. One of the, the last two tools I'll mention is when the Buddha achieved his enlightenment, Mara arrives and, and doubts that enlightenment has happened. And Mara says to the Buddha, what proof, who will testify that you've attained any awakening or enlightenment or liberation? And the Buddha does something very, very clever, which is he doesn't argue back, he doesn't point to anyone, he doesn't, he doesn't refute Mara, he simply reaches down and touches the ground. And that one act, uh, uh, the, the fable goes that the ground shook and all that stuff, you know, whatever. <laughs> but what he's doing there is he's becoming present. He's pulling himself into the tactile, felt, you know, ex, you know, the sensations that are present. He's getting out of the internal debate that will never resolve and he's touching something that's real, and he's pulling away from the, the inner critic, and he's saying, I'm here, right now. My mind state is proof. And in that, there's so much hope, because what it's saying to us is that when we are besieged by guilt and shame, the solution is not to try to justify ourselves to ourselves, but to simply become present to this moment, right now, right here. What evidence is there that I'm in any way failing or falling short? None. None whatsoever. And finally, one of my teachers said to me, you know, there's a reason why we practice right speech. And it's more than just not harming people. It's so that in the way that we speak to others, if we develop kindness and compassion, we will begin to speak that way to ourselves and our mind. The way we allow ourselves to address ourselves is so key on how much power we give to the superego, the inner critic, the inner tyrant. I long ago realized that in addition to the shame and fear that I felt whenever I would was in a sort of overly self-regulating, self-inhibiting uh, mind state, my mind would be very, very lacerating. Who are you to do this? You know, why do you think you get to your failure? And simply establishing ground rules to how I would allow my mind to think. The moment a thought became belittling or repetitive or catastrophizing, projecting, negative futures, and my mind is the greatest catastrophizer. Literally, when I was thinking of quitting my job, my mind would envision, it wouldn't just go, okay, I'll have to live with a little less. It would go to homelessness and poverty and myself on the corner with the cup, you know. It just it instantly could, could, could do that. And I had to train myself to not ever give attention to any thought that started at belittling, 
or shouting or repetitive or catastrophizing. And if a thought arised and said, oh, I'm a little bit scared of doing this or I'm not sure this is a good idea, fine, I'll listen to that. But if it comes in, in any way a form that's shaming in the extreme, I won't. So those are some thoughts. I'm dealing with the over-regulating, internalized, interjected superegos. I hope that there was something worthwhile in there.